Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection, where we tackle the everyday challenges of being a GP. What can a mystery sleeping sickness that only affects children in asylum-seeking families in Sweden tell us about the everyday consultations we have as GPs? In today's episode, we speak to neurologist Suzanne O'Sullivan, author of The Sleeping Beauties and Other Stories of Mystery Illness, a book which challenges the way we think about illness, diagnosis, and how we practice medicine. I'm Tom Nolan, a GP in London and clinical editor for the BNJ. And as usual, I'm joined by uh, Jenny. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Tom. I'm Jenny Rasanathan, a family medicine doctor and clinical editor for the BMJ. And Navjoit, how are you doing? Hi, I'm Navjoit Lada. I'm a clinical editor at the BMJ and a locum GP in London. Cool. Well, um, yeah, I'm really excited about today's episode. We've got a great uh, interview with um, with Suzanne. Um, but um, but how are you both doing? I mean, it's very hot here in London. Uh, well, I'm not quite in London anymore, but uh, um, how are things for you, Navjoit? Yeah, good. I'm similarly kind of melting, but that's good. I haven't quite reached the point where I'm complaining that it's too hot. I'm going to try and hold off getting to that stage for as long as possible. Oh, right. oh I, I was there uh, a few days ago. You've, you, okay. <laughs> um, I'm trying to resist. It's hard though, because it really is too hot. Um, but yeah, things are fine. Good. And you, Jenny, how's things for you, New Zealand? Yeah, all good. Melting for a different reason. We've had lots of rain recently. Um, and currently enduring one of the downsides of not being socially isolating. I have a cold. Oh, great. There's something reassuring or, yeah, uplifting about your first cold after lockdown. Uplifting? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Old school. Old school Uh, is a better word for it. (laughs) So today's episode sort of comes a bit about through, um, well, we did a bit of brainstorming, didn't we, a few weeks ago, trying to think, well, what, what do we want to do next with the po- podcast? And um, I guess we're, we're going to each take control of a, a bit more of, over specific episodes. Um, and, and I think a few that are coming up that I am have been working on um, are kind of like my midlife crisis or my midlife GP crisis, I think we, we can we can say. Um, if you remember, I was saying how a little bit disillusioned with with general practice, maybe as we've come back out of restrictions and um, maybe just the demands, or maybe I just needed to um, listen to the burnout episode. But uh, yeah, I have been been thinking some the bigger thoughts about you know what are we really doing, where where, where are we going, and, and so yeah, going to try and cover some of that in the next well within the next couple of months. Wow, it's exciting! So this is like Tom's midlife crisis strand of deep breath in. Exactly. Yes. Where has this journey taken you? Um, well, I guess it's 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 kind of like the, the big questions, like you know, not quite what's the meaning of life, but but maybe what's the meaning of of, of health or or healthcare Ooh. or general practice. So, <laughs> so um, yeah. So speaking of navel gazing, this is this is me. So trying to work out, you know, what, what, what's what's called, what's it all about in, in the consultation, and maybe what I'm doing wrong. So let's move on to to, to talk about uh, Susanna Sullivan, who's a um, well. She'll introduce herself in a minute, but she's a neurologist at, um, at uh, Queen Square, UTLH in London, uh, and she's an author. And she recently had this this new book out um, called The Sleeping Beauties, and a really really fascinating book. And uh, recommend anyone read it. Um, but a lot of it really struck with me um, thinking about these bigger questions about some of the things I think we see in general practice about. Yeah, you know that some of the questions we're we're, we're asking or, or being asked, and and my frustration with not really knowing the answers to them much of the time. Um, so we'll hear some of the stories that Suzanne um, describes in her book, where she's just gone around the world meeting uh, people who suffer from unusual functional illnesses, uh, and then she describes some of the mechanisms of how these illnesses come about. Um, and that's coming up after this from our sponsor. When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need someone you can turn to at any time. Medical protection is always here for you, 
with expert medical legal advice, including 24-7 in an emergency. We don't just cover patient claims. We're also here to provide support and legal representation when it comes to GMC inquiries, coroner inquests, criminal investigations, and more. Online, we offer risk prevention courses and webinars to keep you up to date with current news, risks, and legislation. We also go the extra mile when it comes to your well-being. With a free counselling service and e-care app, we're helping members take positive steps to better mental and physical health. It's the protection your career deserves, all in one place. And if you're about to qualify or have recently qualified, we can help you take the next step in your career with savings on membership for newly qualified GPs. To find out more, visit medicalprotection.org. And now we'll go to my interview with Suzanne O'Sullivan. Okay, hi, I'm uh, Dr. Suzanne O'Sullivan. I'm a consultant in clinical neurophysiology and neurology based at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery in London. And also you, you've recently published this great book, uh, The Sleeping Beauties and Other Stories of Mystery Illness. Correct. And uh, which is really fascinating. And I, I thought um, if we just start perhaps by, by telling us about the book and, and perhaps one or more of the, um, the examples of these mystery illnesses that uh, you've described. Yeah, so um, as a neurologist, I have kind of a long-term interest in kind of functional neurological disorders, so kind of psychosomatic disorders. I specialize in looking after people with epilepsy, and by that, the nature of that, I see a lot of people with non-epileptic attacks and comas for functional reasons. So the start of this book for me was when I read about the story of the Sleeping Beauties, as I refer to them in this book, a group of children in Sweden who fell into a very sort of mysterious coma that for some of them lasts for years at a time. So some of these are really young children aged, say, you know, between seven up to about 19, children who just gradually withdrew into themselves until they got to a point where they didn't move, they didn't eat, they didn't speak, they didn't open their eyes. They had to be kept alive with NG feeding and physiotherapy from their parents. You know, I see things a little like this all the time in my role as a neurologist, but I'd never seen anything that lasted several years, you know, children comatose for years. And that was really how this book began for me because I visited some of those children, you know, two little girls in particular, a 10 year old and an 11 year old who had entered this state gradually. And one of them had been lying in bed unresponsive for a year and a half in her own home, I should add, not being cared for in a hospital, as would happen, I think, to um, to mm. other children, because these children were a very particular group. They were from asylum seeking families in Sweden, um, f- children from all over the world, from very troubled places who traveled to Sweden looking for asylum and when facing deportation, sunk into this state. And what really, when I visited them, I was obviously upset by what I saw. It was upsetting to see children in this condition, not in hospital, not getting any active medical treatment. But I was doubly upset by the conversation that surrounded these children. And it was a very Western medical conversation, which was, you know, what do their brain scans show? What what neurotransmitter is causing this? And it seemed to me very obvious what was causing it. Everyone knew what was causing it. They were asylum seeking children who were facing deportation to a country that they they only kind of knew from stories. It was clearly a a significant social problem that Western medicine couldn't talk about directly. So they could only talk about it in brain scans. And that sort of led me around the world to people in oddly similar circumstances, different but similar, a town in Kazakhstan where 133 people fell into a prolonged sort of supposedly inexplicable sleep um, over a period of um, about five years. Hundreds of people just fell asleep where they were, couldn't be woken for a week and then woke up and recovered. Or a town in Colombia where over a thousand schoolgirls developed contagious seizures that just spread from school to school, kind of propagated by contagious rumour. So it was sort of, a, this book was a journey for me from 
being a very Western medical doctor who does believe in brain scans to trying to be a more open-minded doctor who, re- who, who can see beyond the brain scan to the story but that people are trying to tell with their symptoms. Mm. Tell us more about, in, in going back to the, the children in Sweden, um, one thing that struck me was that there was a route to recovery, wasn't there? But it wasn't. It didn't involve medication or... Precisely. I mean, you know, everyone knew what it would take to make these children better. They tended to slip into this state very, very gradually. They became apathetic and kind of slowly took to their beds when facing deportation. And mm. the solution was to offer them asylum. And when they were offered asylum, they didn't leap out of their beds in some sort of kind of magical way. They recovered Mm. the way one does from chronic illness, you know, very slowly Mm. woke up and very slowly were rehabilitated back to normal in most cases. So the cause was clearly social and so was the solution. And yet the sort of conversation around it sort of struggled to meet that head on. I guess you might you might feel, well, this is maybe fabricated illness or um, or or maybe a uh, another thing that struck me was that you didn't think of these as like a psychological illness, like some forms of very severe, I suppose, depression with, I guess, like psychosis with very negative symptoms. It's, this was very different in the presentation. And well, yeah, tell us more about that. We have this sort of singular way of looking at these disorders as if they're all psychogenic, meaning that that person is responding to an individual trauma within their own lives and that there is perhaps something discrete that has caused this. But you know, when I met these children, you know, there was something I felt to be learned in the in the sort of um, the geographical patterning of this illness. Mm. So this disorder, which affects these children, is called resignation syndrome, um, or that's it's a newly coined diagnosis. It only exists in Sweden. Um, it has, I should say, it has more recently spread to some other countries, but for a very long time, it was a disorder that only happened in Sweden and only happened to a. a children of asylum-seeking families from a specific geographical area, not a single country, but a general geographical area around these sort of ex-Russian republics um, and small ethnic minorities coming from areas in the region of Syria. Mm. And that says something, you know, because if this, if slipping into resignation syndrome was something that was a response to psychological trauma, then we should be seeing this everywhere. You know, because we see psychological trauma everywhere and we see physical responses to psychological trauma everywhere. But we only saw resignation syndrome in Sweden. And that really was the reminder I needed to how important the sort of sociocultural molding of mm. how we express our distress, the kind of sociocultural environmental molding of how we interpret bodily symptoms or how we respond in certain situations seemed every bit as important as the psychological trauma these children had been through. So again, in the book, you um, talked through predictive coding, which I found really useful, and illness templates stuck out as a, as a, as a useful kind of um, way of thinking about, about this and how these kind of come together to, to give us the, these very unusual, oh, and actually perhaps some more common things that we see every day. Yeah, so if we think, I think a lot of people think about our brains as sort of a firstly much more reliable than they are and secondly much more like sort of just sponges soaking up information but actually that's not how they work at all you know our brains are you know from the moment that we are born our brains are being um, quickly programmed by our environment so I always use language as an example because I think it's it's useful you know when we're born our brains have the capacity to speak any language at all. But the minute our parents start speaking to us, etc., we start developing brain connections that teach us English, but at the same time, pruning away connections that could teach us other languages. So in that way, our environment is directly molding our brains to our environment. And in, in exactly the same way, sort of we're, we... We learn how to predict what's happening to us in the world. We learn to the depth of things, the speed of things. So our brain isn't just kind of um, recording things. It's, it is comparing what we are seeing, what we are experiencing to um, the, what is coded in our brains as a prediction. And the reason they work that way is to make us efficient so that we don't have to spend ages working things out, the depth of things, so we can pay attention to what's important and ignore the things that aren't important. But these sort of predictions also apply to how we interpret things in our bodies. 
So all day long, your body is producing lots of physical symptoms. You know, when you walk up the stairs, your heart rate increases, your breathing increases. And you know what? Until you get older and this becomes more obvious, you don't even notice it. You just take your body for absolute granted. Um, but then if you start noticing some changes in your bodies, you draw on the those sort of um, predictions and templates that have been placed in your brain many years before in order to sort of um, explain what's happening to you. So, um, you know, as somebody who's got in the UK, who's got a stomach upset might say, well, you know, that sounds a bit like something I know about irritable bowel syndrome. And then they will say, well, what are the other symptoms? Again, this isn't conscious. This is all happening at some other sort of unconscious level. You feel the symptom, you think, oh, that feels like irritable bowel syndrome. What are the other symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome? So now I'm going to search myself for those other symptoms. And when you start searching your body, you find things. So we have this way of interpreting our bodies based on predictions and illness templates that have been there, you know, for a very long time that have come from so many different places, from folklore, from our educational system, you know, from things we hear in the news, etc. And those predictions affect how we respond in certain situations, firstly, and they secondly affect how we respond when we feel a particular symptom. So it may be that a child who's facing um, deportation will have that physiological um, sort of change that one any one of us would have in a stressful situation. So facing that, one might find one's heart rate goes up or one's stomach starts to rumble or one's bowel motions change or one starts feeling tired. That could happen mm -hmm. to anyone. But where the predicting comes in and how this can overwhelm the system is that if you're a child facing deportation and you know that the folklore of how these symptoms evolves is that once it starts, it could lead to you feeling too tired to get out of bed. And that could lead you to being too tired to, to open your eyes or to move. Then those initial symptoms can follow that sort of predicted template. One's nervous system can be overwhelmed into developing these symptoms. And I sort of, again, I always think it's useful to compare these things to, to things we all experience. So for example, you know, I'm, I'm a doctor, but I'm frightened of needles. I don't have like what I would call a severe needle phobia. But like when I see the needle vaccination needle coming at me, you know, I can anticipate the pain before the needle has pierced my skin. I can't be the only person who has felt that. So it's just your expectations can create symptoms or, or control your behavior and your predictions may lead to you fulfilling a prophecy. So given that, do you think these somatic symptoms are actually symptoms? Is that a useful way of thinking about them? Okay, language fails these disorders. You know, you're constantly upsetting or alienating people with the language because if you call something psychological, you know, people think that means that they must be mad or something awful trauma must have happened, whereas I might mean psychological in a broader way and people try to sanitize the language. So I think language fails these things. But I agree that... Um, the minute you call something a symptom, it becomes abnormal. And as a doctor, we're expected to label it and investigate it. And that's probably what people could benefit from knowing the difference between when a bodily change is just a bodily change, which is within normal parameters for, for life, and when a bodily change becomes abnormal and therefore becomes a symptom. And that's when it becomes the business of doctors. And that's when it becomes subject to testing and labeling. So yes, I don't think we should call psychosomatic symptoms symptoms. But I also think that way too much time goes into arguing about language of these disorders, not in this discussion particularly, but um, more time has been spent labeling non-epileptic attacks, pseudo seizures, dissociative seizures, functional seizures, then seems to go into the solving of them. So um, I do agree with your point about language, but I also tire of the constant need to sanitize it also. That was fascinating. So interesting. Mm. Good for you. <laughs> Uh, I can see why you liked why you liked it, Tom. Mm -hmm. I can see it oh, ticked really. a lot of your boxes. <laughs> you know, disease labels, placebo effect. Mm -hmm. It was like all mm -hmm. there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, Sorry, not to reduce you to just an interest yeah. in like a few things. <laughs> but but the question that you asked about the distinction between one of these syndromes 
versus like severe depression with negative symptoms, I thought was such a good question. You know, like, no, truly, because I think there is. It helped that there there was a passage in the book which went through that. So I I won't claim. Oh, (laughs) but but, I thought it was just your genius. But in our head, I think as well, I, I don't know if you were doing the same thing, but as you're listening, you're like, oh, that sounds like an anxiety symptom. You know, you just, mm. that like urge to kind of categorize and label things. It's just always there, isn't it? I suppose that that's definitely one thing that maybe isn't the major point to, of any of this, but we, we do have that tendency, don't we, to go, oh, well, it's not a physical thing. It's, but, but, you know, this is the arguing, isn't it? That neither need it be a psychological thing, you know, and that we always, Bit obsessed with like what's the traumatic episode in that person's life or you know mm-hmm. I just need to unlock that well it actually might not be anything like that at all it's just the how you know the environment you grew up in or you know the the, the folklore of the community you, you live within yeah that yeah. so resonates with me though this idea that there has to be some deep underlying cause of why you're feeling or the symptom that you're having, particularly if it's one that tends to be stigmatized in our society, you know, like if you experience depression or anxiety, well, there must have been like child abuse or like some other nefarious thing in your past. And while those things can be correlated, sometimes people just get depressed and it's not because they've endured any trauma. Hmm. Yeah, exactly, uh, exactly. Uh, so we did come on to, but I don't think we could, we did talk, meant, touch on depression in our second half. Um, uh, what else struck you from, from that? I suppose just the initial uh, examples there of these children, and you know, it just seems incredible to me that this this would happen in that very specific group facing deportation. I thought that was absolutely fascinating. Um, so interesting and. <laughs> this point about you know um illness templates that um mm. Suzanne described is just yeah re- sorry I'm not going to say anything profound here but just really really interesting just mm. you know it just made me think of um I suppose not I suppose not only the template that you might sort of like understand as um someone experiencing a symptom or is it a symptom or is it not experiencing something Mm. um but also as um clinicians and how we kind of try and box these things into i don't know like a a paradigm that we understand or that we've created and how that probably sells a lot of people short like if you think that um you know we're coming at it often from a very western um Hmm. patriarchal all of those sorts of things perspective and if you think of you know um experiences from elsewhere even just experiences for women often you know we're always talking about how women um how medicine tends to serve you know not serve everyone equally and and that to me seems like one one kind of explanation if you like that you know our conception of medicine is so narrow Hmm. that um it fails a lot of people Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, And I think, you know, we've kind of thought about this before, but there is this, for me at least in practice, this tension between kind of when it's okay to chalk a symptom up to stress or a reaction to something in their life versus when it's something... um, you know, and, and Suzanne talks about this as well, but when it's like a bodily change that's not within the normal parameters that truly warrants investigation. Um, you know, when when I was in practice in the Bronx, we saw a lot of, you know, symptoms that I suppose we would have labeled psychosomatic, which seemed very clearly, very obviously linked to the kind of social... Um, context in which they lived, the stressors they were experiencing, you know, not exactly the same, but kind of akin to facing deportation in some cases. Mm -hmm. And it just seemed so obviously linked. But then in the back of your mind, it's, well, what if it's actually this? And what if it's actually that? And am Mm -hmm. I doing the patient wrong by attributing these symptoms to what is very obviously, you know, a major factor in their life when I should be actually veering more towards the medicalization side yeah i guess that's true there's a yeah so you end up doing doing the bloods and the scan <laughs> but 
And, or and maybe, maybe not, a, because, you know, we would have never gotten insurance approval to do those fine, things. Fine, but, so. <laughs> but I suppose there is a danger with, with, with this, what we're talking about, is that it, it can be a bit of a god of the gaps, I suppose. I suppose you, you could almost um, attribute any symptom to the social context in which it's happening, and it's quite hard to disprove. That's actually the one question I forgot to ask <laughs> Suzanne when we talked, but... Yeah, it's about. I suppose it's a balance to be struck between looking for the, um, you know, the brain tumor, and uh, you know, looking at the more more likely story that's been told with these symptoms. To steal her phrase, I suppose the other thing to remember as well is that sometimes I suppose um, like those things will be linked to something. I don't know what, again, the language is failing me here, but, you know, there there will be pathology that is linked to some of those circumstances um, that we are right to kind of try and look for or, you know, where it would be reasonable to look for those things. So we got way ahead of ourselves really there. We um, touch on a lot of this that we're talking about with Western medicine and how uh, functional and psychosomatic illness is very present in in our practice and and our culture. Um, So, yeah, let's hear that second part of the interview with Susanna O'Sullivan. And that's coming up after this offer for Deep Breath In listeners. As a GP, you want to ensure your practice is in line with the latest clinical guidance. That's why all NHS staff in England, Scotland and Wales have free access to BMJ Best Practice. With extensive coverage of the most commonly occurring conditions, BMJ Best Practice helps you treat patients with confidence. Structured around the patient consultation, it includes differential diagnosis and treatment algorithms, videos of common clinical procedures, important update alerts for evidence changes, over 250 medical calculators, links to local guidelines, nearly 500 patient leaflets and an award-winning app for access anytime, anywhere. Create your free account today by visiting bmj.com slash ukaccess. Funded by Health Education England, NHS Education for Scotland and NHS Wales. And now let's go back to the second part of the interview with Suzanne O'Sullivan. So if you apply the same um, principles that we learned from Sleeping Beauties and and, and these other uh, examples, um, how do you see this manifesting in, in our society? But I think the problem is that, you know, when we we give medical labels to things within our own culture, um, we don't recognise that we're doing it. So stories like resignation syndrome, you know, asylum seek- affects asylum-seeking children or greasy sickness is a sort of illness that causes convulsions that affects indigenous people of Nicaragua. And I think when people read those stories, they think, well you know, it's what what doctors call a fascinoma, you know, it's fascinating, but what's it got to do with me? Mm. It's very hard. These are sort of culture-bound ways of expressing distress and culture-bound ways of interpreting bodily changes. And when you try to find them within your own culture, it can be difficult because we present everything as so scientific um, that we don't recognise our own cultural ways of dealing with distress. And I fear that our increasing medicalization and our increasing fondness for labeling things is our sort of cultural way of um, dealing with and expressing distress. So in particular, I have problem with the expanding sort of inclusivity of, of many medical diagnoses. The consequence, of course, is what you mentioned, which is I have a concern that we label people with disorders like ADHD, um, depression, um, autism, um, POTS, hypermobility syndromes, much too willingly. And of course, a label, I should emphasize that, you know, people with the severe end of the spectrum of these sort of disorders clearly have a disease. It's the people in that sort of middle area that, um, that concern me. And I think that we can easily make people feel better by giving them labels that explain what's happening to them. And that gives it you a sense of ultimate relief. However, um, it, it can create create disability in the long run. So the minute I tell somebody that their lapses in concentration are due to dissociative seizures, I'm turning someone who perhaps could have something one could call normal into a medical problem 
which um, labels that person as a patient. And as soon as I label someone as a patient, they can begin embodying the experience of being a patient. And that can lead to long-term disability, just through the way people treat their, how they treat them, how they treat, they view themselves. And also through the process of, you know, if I, if I've been told I've got a diagnosis of depression and then I look up all the other symptoms of depression, I can start inadvertently acting out those symptoms in order to kind of, um, uh, you know, work with the label that I've been given. So I think that um, there's too much certainty offered, suggested in some of these diagnoses with not enough thought given to the negative consequences Mm -hmm. of a label. Is there anything we can do on an individual level here? Or is this about shifting the way that we as a society think about these conditions? Yeah, on an individual level, I think it's extremely difficult. You know, and I certainly have also seen people, as as you're describing, high-functioning people who've survived into their 30s without being given a label. And now there's so much information in, in online, in the news, etc. And there's such a pressure to to um for people to explain why things aren't going well for them um and when we try to take on an individual level labels away from people i think it really um it pushes them almost further into the diagnosis because it's sort of um forcing them to reinforce their symptoms in order to prove that we are wrong and they are right so i'm not certain that we can it, i'm not certain it ever really works for me to say to a patient, you know, I'm not necessarily convinced that you suffer with this this disorder because I find that people rail against that a little. I think we probably need to think, change how these things are talked about in the public arena um, and how they are sort of almost advertising for new recruits for this disorder. Um, We need to deal with it on a social level rather than on um, an individual level. But how how we talk in the media and in the public about things like mental health, anxiety, I think when you say the word anxiety, it seems to primarily be meaning as a a medical illness now rather than as a feeling. Um, Are we just ignoring the fact that this is actually quite a harmful way of talking, uh, despite the the good meaning and the behind it. Yes, my concern is that ordinary sadness can become labelled as depression. And that can be a good thing a little bit because it it allows a person, I mean, a person can't go to a doctor and say, you know, I'm unhappy with my life. Do you mind talking to me for 15 minutes? Because you know what, they have to come to me with a neurological problem. And, you know, they, you know, there's no place for people whose problem isn't medical in our in our practices or perhaps there is in a GP practice but even then um, not so much so it, it benefits someone to have a medical label that allows them to talk to a doctor it benefits mm-hmm. doctors to have medical labels to get as a way of treatment pathways and plans for what we do next um, but I think it's absolutely ignored how this ignores how we are creating patients and chronic disability with these labels and I think people just don't realize that you know once you are given a medical label it will affect how other people treat you it will affect um it will always be sort of a label that you you will carry and um embody in the future so yes mm. I, I I am concerned I don't think all anxiety no. is a mental illness I think a lot of people are anxious and that's just it you know mm. human trait as GPs we're gatekeepers to, to various kinds of support uh, medical but also sometimes social so, for instance, a, a diagnosis within a company might make you get access to support within that organisation. Uh, do you think that too pushes people more into their diagnosis? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, yes, I think we have a problem in that we're losing our kind of supporting institutions and our, you know, we're a more individualistic society. So family, you, we have less family support than perhaps in other places and also in the past. I'm not an, um, a spiritual or religious person, but, you know, we've also less inclined to get um, the sort of support that used to be available from kind of religious um, institutions. And I think the consequence is that sometimes the way of getting help is from a doctor. But to see a doctor and to go down a certain pathway, you do have to have a label. So I think we kind of force people into, you know, if the only... I have patients who come to me who... I always almost feel like they're afraid to get better because then they won't be able to come anymore. 
and um, it, we need other supportive uh, areas of support for people if we want to reduce the amount of medicalization. So that's one issue. I don't necessarily disagree with it in all circumstances. And that was another thing I sort of learned in this book was that um, sometimes that's the the means by which people problem solve. And I have a slightly, have had in the past, a slightly sort of way of looking down on that, you know. So you will say that, um, someone will say that they believe they have ADHD and that requires them to change their lives in this way. And that's a positive change for them. And I've had a slightly sort of um, way of looking at that, that, you know, why was that necessary? And did you need the label? And we should stop labeling people. But I think there is also an argument that, you know, for some people, that's a way of working through problems and coming to solutions. And if that's their way, then I shouldn't discourage it. But I think we're, we have to start recognizing the point at which a label is helping someone to make a decision or to get where they're going uh, or the point at which a label is actually disabling the person. And I don't think people are always able to see that because they feel the benefit of the label in the first instance. And then they, it takes too long to realize whether they've gone down the good pathway to recovery or the bad pathway to chronic disability. I'm just thinking now about um, in, in adolescence and childhood and um, you talk about, how do you say, greasy sickness? And this is a, um, a condition with a beginning, a middle and an, and an end, whereas a lot of the conditions that we diagnose we don't have a treatment there is no end it's a label that that's that for life really is yeah precisely i mean this greasy sickness it's sort of a disorder of of teenage girls predominantly and it's sort of a response in indigenous people of nicaragua to a specific kind of social cultural stressor which is a sort of unwanted attention um, that young women get from older men and sexualization of young women who live in a very conservative society. And when they get greasy sickness, they get these odd seizures that um, immediately attract a community response. So it's like this beautiful choreographed dance that says, you know, the child can say, I'm distressed. I don't have to tell you exactly what it's about because you know what this means. And when they develop these seizures, it has meaning in the community and the community come together and they, they support the young women. And then they have sort of a ritualized treatment. I mean, this, this was all attributed to demons and treated with ritual. Um, and it was a beautifully elegant and sophisticated way of working through a difficult social problem. And I, I came away, I'm not a, a I'm an atheist, um, I'm not a spiritual person, but I came away looking at some of the communities that were much more spiritual um, than me or than many Western communities, and just really admiring what they were able to achieve with the kind of supportive um, systems they had in place. Um, and I came away thinking that um, there are a group of people for whom a medical solution is clearly the solution. And then there's a group of people for whom ritual is actually a solution going through a process that they will believe will end in recovery is a solution. But I have absolutely no idea at this point how to incorporate that into my practice. And therein lies the next challenge, I guess. <laughs> And looping back all the way to where we started with this, uh, do you think those rituals are having a similar sort of neurological effect as these somatic symptoms? That's the placebo effect, isn't it? So we, you know, maybe um, we could think about incorporating the placebo. We already incorporate the placebo effect in certain ways into our medical practice. But, you know, and I think we've always had ethical considerations about using placebo in a more sort of um, overt way. But there may be an argument for um, for including it more in our practice if it leads to recovery and if it if it um, gives us better outcomes because psychosomatic disorders like I deal with non epileptic seizures only thirty percent of them get better I mean that's a shocking recovery rate and surely there must be something more we could do seizures in Nicaragua if you get greasy sickness hundred percent recovery so surely there must be something to be learned from that. That was so great. Um, it's really good to listen to the second half of that interview. And I just, I, I, I feel kind of inspired. Like I've never, I don't think I've really consciously 
thought about the social construct of what it means to be a patient before. You know, like I think, like we, we talk about this all the time, you know, and I think we've had conversations about labeling, but this idea of embodying an experience as a patient and fitting into the illness template of what it means to be a patient according to your family, your community, your society um, is really, really interesting to me. Um, It makes me think of like Munchausen's and how there is some kind of appeal to that social construct of a patient. Like there's, there's some kind of need to be perceived as a patient Um, whether that's the care or the attention or just everything that is wrapped up in what it means to be a patient. I'm not sure I've really kind of consciously thought about that Mm. before. Yeah, it's a bit mind-blowing, isn't it? You think of the, um, I guess for me, it's those, the gray areas between, you know, well, disease and, and just not even a symptom, um, just a, you know, sadness and depression, I suppose, is is a really, really, really common example where it feels like um, the more we talk about our disease template, go, to use that phrase again, as being go to your doctor, um, you know, it, it, it's it's not it's not always. This is not to say anything about or, or reduce the <laughs> the benefits that does for, for for many many people, but you know, we just need to think about, think through as a on a societal level more than anything what what that means yeah and one one of the other things that really struck me was this idea of and i think tom you said this the escalation of risk as being the only way of being heard right and it's kind of that like once like just having sadness or melancholy or whatever you want to call it isn't enough justification to seek medical treatment. But if you're worried about being depressed or if you label yourself as being depressed, well, then, you know, society has a place for you and you're entitled to now get care and get this conversation and get empathy um, from people. Um, but but it's well, all... But, it, oh, sorry. Oh, no, just and, and just to add to that, you're better still if you have, a, if you have um, some... Some more than that, your physical symptoms and and a scan, which proves mm-hmm. then then we'll all take notice and you'll get back some more empathy still. Uh, and it's a good thing that we we are giving more time and empathy and understanding to people with depression. Um, whereas twenty thirty years ago, you know, you, you probably had to be in hospital to get any sympathy. Right. And it's not that these things are made up. I don't think any of us is saying hmm. that these symptoms or anything are made up. That's not what it means. It is a, it is a genuine experience. Um, but it's this idea and that Suzanne said that there's no place for people whose problems aren't medical. Um, and as she was describing this, it reminded me of a podcast I listened to recently. It was an episode of the Ezra Klein show with James Foreman Jr., who's a professor at Yale. And it was about offering viable alternatives to policing in society. And the idea is that in the same, and I think analogous to medicine, we've kind of um, tried to use medicine as this blunt solution for a whole range of problems. And, and there's no place for people whose problems don't fit that mold, just like policing, like police are the only units in many places that have appropriate staffing hours, personnel to respond to a whole range of problems. Mm. But actually, some of the people who call the police would actually benefit from a different kind of professional, a different kind of person coming in to solve their problem. And maybe that's true for some of these you know, people who've gotten labels um, mm. as patients in a number of different ways, like maybe what they need is to feel like their issues are legitimate and that they can take them to another person instead of seeking out the medical establishment. Yeah. Enough joke, we should let you <laughs> join us. I don't really know that I have that much to add to that, actually. I thought I sort of... That's My rant. I'm amazed that you brought in policing, alternatives to policing into that, Jenny. That was impressive. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I agree. I, I think it's really hard, isn't it? Because I was thinking, as I was listening, if I was experiencing symptoms that I couldn't explain 
I absolutely 100% would want a label, even if perhaps <laughs> that would make me fall into an illness template and actually, you know, things would, I don't know why I would start, you know, what Suzanne was saying about self-fulfilling pro- prophecy. I, it's important, isn't it? It's a kind of this imperative that we have to find meaning in what's happening to us. And uh, yeah, at the moment we, as we've all been saying, you know, our ways of finding that meaning is very is very limited Mm. um you know we look to medicine and medicine doesn't have the answers always and it doesn't have the solutions often but it's better than you know there is no there's not really an Mm. alternative like you know and so yes I, i of course i understand the kind of downsides and harms but from a yeah i i just think that there there is a i don't know i would imagine if you speak to patients you know they might take that trade-off that okay I don't this label as for all the reasons that you know you've been saying is enabling and valuable in, yeah. in many ways so um so that's me you know, I, I think we're going to look at again in, in future episodes I'm, I'm talking to some different people about that that labeling you know the pros and cons and just trying to work through a bit more about what that would mean for specific things so um Pre-diabetes, my other favourite subject. Um, ah. We're gonna we're gonna touch on that, um, and I suppose what what would I take home from this is, uh, as well as being disappointed that there wasn't really anything much we could do differently in the consultation. This is I suppose this is talking about this, the level of society rather than in the in the consultation, but um, it's where you do have that time, and this is what we always conclude in every episode, isn't it? If we had more time and we could really, um, you know really understand the the narrative that you know and maybe we can add to that you know what is it what's the story or what's the help that this person is really seeking through their symptoms then I I suppose sometimes that it would be possible to avoid a label that may be good or bad but you know to you know to find a route through perhaps without Mm. reaching for a label very quickly and um you know, with all the the potential harm that that can do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it feels a bit like swimming against the tide, though. Sometimes, doesn't it? It's very hard to resist that um, mm. urge for mm. to find a label, whether that's directed from you know you as a clinician or from from a patient to kind of have the strength and courage to kind of say, actually, this is not this yeah. <laughs> this is this is you know something i don't understand or something yeah. that, or you know maybe you do understand you know that that it's functional yeah. and, and it, that there is an art to it, giving that explanation well maybe be and also being a bit more honest with our role in, in our profession is you know you come to see a, a doctor who's you know trained in, in this way you know our job is to give people labels you know whether we like it or not uh between yeah. the three of us and that is kind of what we do um and you know we it's not you know we can obviously do what we can to try and shift that or or on a on a broader level but um maybe we need to just be more i don't know i don't know if i agree with my own conclusion to that but <laughs> i don't know but it's also interesting to think about what suzanne said about kind of distinguishing when that labeling is helpful or harmful mm. um and i think you know i think we we all agree that to some people, like you were saying, Navdroid, it can be a relief to get that, but can also lead to this kind of chronic disability. But we don't have any idea of how to predict who's going to respond in what way, right? And maybe if we had a better sense or some way to kind of talk that through with people, like to judge, like, how much is this about, you know, there being a cry, a, a cry for help, manifested in symptoms versus how much of this is like I just need to know what this is do you know what I mean yeah no I agree so as we're getting to the end of the episode here maybe we should just end with some practical takeaways what are you gonna take home from this yeah I I mean I again I think this was fascinating um and I think two things are gonna stick with me this idea of illness templates not as a way of delegitimizing what anybody is experiencing, but more as a way of helping them to understand it, helping me to understand it, perhaps understanding um, in a more kind of, um, I hate to say this, but like scientific way, 
kind of how to process some of the symptoms that people are experiencing. And then I, I, again, find this idea really compelling that we don't have a place for people whose problems aren't medical. And not that the answer to everything is social prescribing, but I think really thinking about um, other providers, kind of people who function in other disciplines and remembering that we're all part of a care community together. Mm-hmm. That sounded really cheesy. That was cheesy, yeah. We could have a cheesy ending. <laughs> you, you, can, you can rely on me for that. <laughs> uh, that's true. Try and make it less cheesy, but would you? I'm, I'm reminded of an article that we published last year, which is about recognising and explaining functional neurological disorder, which I think just reminds me that there, there are, you know, well-recognised um, conditions out there too, where you can make a positive diagnosis and where there there is some sort of framework for discussing um, these diagnoses and, and the way forward. Great. Well, yeah, I think we should definitely come back to, to this again. It feels like something we do see all, all the time as GPs and um, I, for one, can certainly <laughs> a lot more to learn about, about them and how to diagnose and communicate uh, about them. So yeah, we'll, we'll try and come back to that in future episodes, uh, along with um, more themes from my midlife GP crisis, which I think has been cured, to be honest, by today. It was all a bit, bit of an anticlimax, but... <laughs> it was a short series, but you'll keep on, keep on with the episode. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Thank you to Suzanne for, for giving up the time to, to talk to us. Uh, see you next time, Jenny. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Navjoy. Uh, see you, Navjoy. Thanks very much. See you next time. So if you've enjoyed today's episode, uh, please go into your podcast app and rate us and let us know what you thought of the episode. You can also email us at practice at bmj.com. And we'll be back in two weeks' time for another episode of Deep Breath In. Bye for now.